Hello and welcome to the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast with me, your host, A.M. Peacock. But for the purposes of this, you can just call me Adam. I'm really pleased to say that Trevor Wood is the co-host today on the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast. Um, Trevor has lived in Newcastle for 25 years and considers himself an adopted Geordie, though he still can't speak the language. He's a successful playwright who has also worked as a journalist and spin doctor for the City Council. Prior to that, he served in the Royal Navy for 16 years. Trevor holds an MA in Creative Writing from UEA. The Man on the Street, published earlier this year, is his first novel featuring Jimmy, a homeless veteran struggling to deal with PTSD. The second book in the Jimmy Mullen series, One Way Street, is due out later this year. Trevor is also one of the founding members of the Northern Crime Syndicate. Our guest today, uh, unusually, because the first two episodes have involved writers, we have an agent on the show for a bit of variety here. So we have Ollie Munson joining us today, and Ollie works as an agent for the esteemed A.M. Heath Agency, which, at 101 years old, makes it the oldest independent literary agency in London. Ollie represents writers such as Mari Hanna, who's a favourite of mine, David Mark, Julia Chapman and David Jackson. He also happens to be the agent of our very own Trevor Wood, which is in no way linked to the fact that he's agreed to be on this podcast. Alongside his work with the agency, Ollie has given talks to various writing groups, universities and international book festivals. Like most crime fans, Ollie can often be found in the bar at Harrogate Crime Festival, something we are all missing this year, unfortunately. And alongside this, my understanding is that Ollie is a Tottenham Hotspur fan, which must make his relationship with Trevor, an Arsenal fan, somewhat strained. So welcome to the show, Ollie. Um, and how did you get over that particular uh, hurdle with Trevor? Um, we managed to work our way through it. Um, but firstly, thank you very much for, for having me. It's lovely to be on the podcast. Didn't tell him is the truth. He's got it. It's on his Twitter bio, but I kept it quiet until we'd actually signed the deal. <laughs> I mean, to, to be fair, to be fair, um, it's one of the few times in the past thirty years where it's probably a bit better to be a Tottenham fan than an Arsenal fan. So, um, I've got a bit lucky with the timing, Trevor. I have to say. We'll, well give you your moments. We'll give you your moments. We'll be back. As a Newcastle fan, all I can say is, you know, good luck is, you know. I uh, I have I have no hatred for your clubs whatsoever. But you watch once we uh, come steaming in with all that money that's gonna back us, we'll uh, we'll be back on top. So anyway, um because obviously you are Trevor's agent, I guess we'll maybe start there before kind of having a look back at your career and how you got into being an agent. Um what was it about Trevor and his work that kind of caught your imagination? Uh, it just grabbed me from the outset. Um, Trevor submitted the first three chapters, and I read those quite quickly and asked to see the full manuscript. Um, and I began reading the manuscript on the train on the way home. And it wasn't a particularly chilled out commute. The trains were a complete mess. And I ended up having to stand on a very crowded train and read what Trevor sent me on my phone. And it's a, a real testament to the quality of Trevor's writing and the quality and, and the um, character of Jimmy in the book that I was absolutely gripped. And it was, you know, baking hot, really unpleasant. And yet here I was in Newcastle um, 
walking the streets with Jimmy. It was great. Yeah, yeah. I've still got the um, the email um, that Ollie sent me. I, I have it pinned to my notice board when I'm writing now and again, glance across. But genuinely, I mean, it, any writer will know that you can send stuff to agents and you don't hear here for weeks, months sometimes, often, never. But, but I sent the full manuscript to, to Ollie at 20 to 5 in the evening and he messaged me at 9 o'clock the next morning to say how much he was enjoying it. And then later that day, he messaged me to say he'd read the whole thing and could we talk in the morning. It all happened in the space of like less than 24 hours, Yeah, which is astonishing. And it is a two-way relationship, isn't it? So what, what for you, Trevor, why did you submit it to Ollie? Um, and if you want a line, say I, you know, I didn't submit it to three hundred thousand people, and and Ollie was the one that got back, uh, as many authors will do. But but obviously, because I know with A.M. Heath, I know from a personal experience that I, I believe you submit to somebody and you say who it is you want to submit it to as a, as an individual agent. So what was it about Ollie that got your attention? Well, with my, I think you might have you changed the process now, Ollie. I think I mean I just approached Ollie direct by email. I didn't go through the kind of submission. Um, process yeah you went you went rogue ah. <laughs> yeah maybe that works i mean it was slightly unusual because we i did the ma at uea um and they published an anthology of the first ten thousand words of everybody's books that are developed on the course and then they have a launch so we were able to approach agents to invite them to the launch rather than uh, here's my book you know mm. um and i asked ollie and he couldn't come to the launch because i think it was was it um frankfurt book fair one of the book fairs anyway um so he said oh, i'm sorry i can't come to launch but why don't you send me the book and i'll have a look at it so kind of shortcut the system but mainly you know you're always looking for an agent who you think might be simpatico with you and especially one who's really specializes in crime mm. um and so ollie was very yeah very near the top of that list yeah, uh, yeah. i think because there aren't that many who are absolute crime specialists i think and i know you represent other stories as well but primarily crime i think yeah i know you don't like i know you don't like ya fantasy for instance <laughs> so you know. so ollie in terms of um <laughs> on your biography on the website it mentions that some of your your clients there's like quite a northern flavor of course trevor is one of those um why is that do you think what is it about northern crime or writers that that grab you that's an interesting question um I suppose being from the South, the South is very familiar. It's my day-to-day. -day. London is my day-to-day. -day. I've lived there most of my life. So perhaps it's getting to know a city and a different way of living and different people in different communities, different landscapes, um, whether that's an urban landscape or a rural landscape. I find that's just a great way to... to experience something that I've only experienced as a, as a, as a very happy tourist when I've got up north. Mm. So, um, yeah, yeah, I look at my list and it is the majority of my time writers are from um, north of the Watford Gap. Yeah, sure. Maybe maybe they're looking at your client list before submission and thinking, oh, he looks after northern writers. And so it's kind of a, a <laughs> cycle of submission. Um, yeah, and, and, and that's the way the, the business works. When I first started out as an agent, you don't really know what kind of agent you're going to be or what you're going to specialize in. Mm -hmm. um, you get given an opportunity and then you you have to, you can do two things. You can either go out and source clients for yourself. Either, usually you would do that with journalists. 
people like that. Or you're reactive to the submissions you you get sent. So at the beginning, I was being sent a lot of nonfiction. So probably for the first six months of being an agent, my list was mostly nonfiction. And I was working at a fantastic company called Blake Friedman. And I'd started there as an assistant to Carol Blake, who was a fantastic agent who represented um, you know, Peter James um, and loads of just wonderful crime writers. So that was sort of my education. I knew a bit about um, crime editors and crime writing through, through that, just you know, in addition to being a fan of the genre myself. Um, but it wasn't until I signed up a guy called Mario Redding, who sadly passed away a few years ago. And this was right at the tail end of the whole Dan Brown um, mystery with history trend. And I met Mario, and Mario was an expert on Nostradamus. And he said to me, look, I'm thinking of changing agents, and I've got an idea for a new novel. And he said, no, tell me a bit about it. Nostradamus wrote A Thousand Prophecies. Only 948 exist today. What happened to the other 52? And I was like, I'm hooked. I'm hooked. And we ended up selling that in something like 33 countries. Wow. Um, and funnily enough, I sold it internationally in 11 of those countries, if not more, before we got a UK deal. So, but after that, my, my, my name was on the list of people who knew how to sell thrillers internationally. And then as a result, as we were saying with the Northern Crime Writers, you get more because you put your market down. So I'm super interested then. And so there's two things I want to kind of drill down into. One is that that process, because as a writer, um, I know, you know, you write a book, you have it there, and then you do something with it. And then once you've submitted and you're in that world, there is kind of a, a system of which you are part of. But for an agent, so I guess two points. The first one is kind of how does one get into becoming an agent? Because it doesn't seem quite as straightforward in my mind as you've written a book and then you submit it somewhere. So so I know you've, you've kind of touched upon it there. What was that mindset for you and how did you go about it initially? And then I think the second thing is to look at kind of that process of once you've got the client, so let's imagine Trevor, you have Trevor signed up with, with a book there. What do you then do from there as kind of part two of your question, really? Sure. Um, well, to answer the first part, I was doing a master's in publishing studies at City University back in 2002. And various luminaries from the world of publishing would come and speak to us. And, you know, there'd be people from production, there'd be fantastic publishers and editors, there'd be people from marketing, people from writing people say it's all the bits and pieces that make up the publishing ecosystem and I always had a hunch that the the life of an agent would be the life for me because it sits nicely at the crossroads of um creativity and um commerce if you like you have to have a bit of a business head but you still get all the great um the, the stuff that I suppose makes editorial fun too which is working with all the manuscript. So I had a hunch that I would like that. And then Carol Blake came and gave a little master class on being an agent. And I was completely sold on it. That, that was it. And as part of the course, you had to do an internship. So after Carol gave her talk, I went up to her and kind of toadied up to her, you know, and said, look, I'd love, I'd love to have the opportunity to, um, 
to, to do this internship with you guys. And I ended up getting getting it. And I didn't leave there for the next 10 years. So that was sort of how I got my way into it. So I started as an intern, became Carol's assistant, and then became an agent, developing my own list, my own list there. Um, as for the, the second question, when I'm reading something I like, a couple of things are going on. First of all, you kind of, you, ha you have this feeling like, you, you know, it's a bit like watching somebody walk a tightrope. You know, you're, you're willing them to get to the other side. You don't want them to fall. And when you're reading a new manuscript for the first time, like I read with Trump, you, you, you're enjoying it so much. You just want it to still be hitting all the right beats halfway through, three quarters of the way through, and then finally it's satisfying to you know, and once that happens, it's hallelujah. They, they've pulled it off fantastically. And that's one thing that's happening, that willingness. And the other part of my brain, in preparation for them making it to the other side, is already making a mental list of editors who I know, who I think would like to, to read the manuscript. Well, okay. So, because I did have a question around, do you, so when you get a book, because I suppose the, the flat response would be that you just, you're looking for a publisher, it gets published, it's kind of job done, other than perhaps TV or film rights getting sold and whatnot. But based upon your reading of any particular given novel or work or whatever from, a, from an author, do you have an image of where that client can get to or might get to? And would you sign up different people knowing that perhaps actually what what someone's produced wouldn't necessarily sit in a TV film world and might never sell those rights, but would make a great book. Um, I, I mean, for me, it's the book first and foremost. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to be clear in my own mind that a this is this is a publishable novel, that there is a market for this novel, and that I know the people who would like to buy this. Um, if on the back of that we end up selling loads of foreign rights film rights, audio rights, maybe, then that's, that's an added bonus. And you kind of get a, you kind of get a sense of whether or not that, that could happen when you're reading as well. Um, but yeah, for, for, for AM Heath in particular, because we are a literary agency and not a media agency, it is books first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ollie, I'm quite interested because I kind of snuck in through the back door almost. We put out a call when we knew we were getting you on here to see if anybody had any questions. And and um, somebody called Marcel Perks asked me to ask you about the submission letters um, and about whether you prefer a straight submission letter which tells you all the things that it says it should do in the submissions guidelines or whether you like to see a bit of um, their personality in it. Yeah, a bit of personality is great, but a little bit of personality can go a long way. <laughs> <laughs> so not too much, I'm guessing. Not too much. And how much? I mean, do you? What's the kind of percentage of stuff that you actually read that gets sent to you? Do you do you sometimes rule things out because of the submission letter, or do you try to read all the submissions that are sent in? Uh, I try. I try to read a bit of everything that gets sent. In. Okay. But I know very quickly whether or not I like something. Yeah. Whether or not it's right for me, really quick. Okay. Um, and if I and if and it happens so rarely, you know, it happens if it happens three times a year, that's been a busy year, right? So, so you uh, sorry, no, sorry, go on, Ali, no, finish your points, fine. So, 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 yeah, you get a sense of um, 
yeah, there's a sense of urgency when you find something that you really think is great. Because it, you, know, you, you, you want to be the person that takes this book into battle. You don't want this other schmuck doing it. You want to be there. Sure. And do you, and, as, as a matter of interest for all writers out there who hate writing them, do you actually read synopsis if they get sent to you? Uh, I don't know anybody who likes writing them. Nobody likes writing them. Nobody likes writing them. I give a masterclass on how to write a synopsis. <laughs> I do. And it's, it's oh, I'm sure it's as boring to listen to as it is to write. <laughs> it's, um, I do, yeah, occasionally I do. I do. I think they're an important document. I think they're quite important for writers um, to, to have a better understanding of their work. I think it's probably the important. But at the end of the day, a blinding synopsis, yeah, synopsis and a mediocre novel isn't going to get you anywhere, is it? So yeah. you've got to have that X factor in your writing. See, I think this is perhaps the wrong question. So I, I did a list of sort of questions and talking points before we started here. And one of them was around kind of what, what sort of irritates you in terms of submissions? Are, are there certain things that kind of turn you off a particular book or author? But I don't know whether the better question is what is it that grips you? So I don't know what, you know, answer that as best you can. Um, whether well, there's any pitfalls people should definitely yeah. avoid. Um, or, you know, what is it that kind of you are looking for at the same time? Um, in, in terms of what I don't like, I suppose it's that um, there can sometimes be a, a, a naivety when people start comparing their works to the great authors of not just this day, but the past 300 years. You know, um, it can't really be. Henry Fielding meets Lee Child, can it, if you're trying to, to be convincing? So I think people sometimes overreach in terms of how they're selling their work in the first instance. Um, it's more instructive to find out, for me, to find out who they consider influenced them or who they like reading. As simple as that, because great writers are great readers as well. So it's interesting to know, um, you know what, what, what gets them going in terms of the books they're reading. Um, and in, it's a question of tone and pitch. If you've had a bit of experience in the past, that is a great thing to mention. And obviously Trevor had his playwriting, um, which intrigued me because I find that um, journalists and playwrights and scriptwriters make very interesting propositions because they know... Um, how to edit and hit deadlines, and they know how to um, hit all the right beats in their writing. It's whether or not um, scriptwriters and playwrights can then add enough in a book to give it the sufficient depth to be a novel rather than something that would just be, be visual. That's the, the question. Mm. And so you obviously have to, like you said, you read Trevor's book on, on the phone, on a train. I imagine you get loads of submissions to sift through and, and, you know, maybe you open and close at different times of the year and whatnot. But do you get to read books for pleasure that aren't in line with your kind of work so you can just sit down and read a novel that's nothing to do with you because you want to read? And as well as that, do, do you write at all? Um, this year, I've set myself a challenge of, trying to read 52 books in a year and I'm, and I'm not workbooks, you know, and I count audiobooks in that as well. And I was doing really, really well until my son was born and I'm completely off the rails now with that. So I'm about seven weeks behind. Um, but yeah, and, and I try and uh, 
read more nonfiction because I don't represent a whole amount of nonfiction. So I'd like to find out what's going on in that area. Um, some classics as well. Music autobiographies I've always really liked. I've represented a couple in my time. Um, so I try and keep it varied. I definitely try and keep it varied. But then, you know, for about five years, people have been saying to me, you have to read Mick Heron. You have to read Mick Heron. And I've met Mick Heron. Mick Heron's a very nice man. But I still hadn't read Mick Heron. And I ended up reading uh, the first one, Slow Horses, the Jackson Lamb series, Slow Horses, on holiday. And I don't think I've done this in about 25 years. I read every single one in that series back to back. And it was an absolute joy. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I try to keep my hand in. But I also, you know, the day job involves a lot of reading. And a lot of looking at screens and a lot of using your eyes. And I think you need uh, to take an opportunity now and again to express, which is why audio books are good. I've just, I, I've literally just put Joe Country down to come and record this podcast. <laughs> about three quarters of the way through. It's great. It is, isn't it? I'm sorry. I feel like it is. I'm intruding on that now. Uh, <laughs> no, but, 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 but yeah, again, a master storyteller who captivates. Uh, so. I'd like to talk a bit about Mari Hanna because actually when I was starting out writing how many years ago, um, it took us ages to get that first book done. But when I when I started out, I kind of I stumbled across Mari Hanna because at the time I sort of, I don't think it was arrogance, but I thought, oh, I'll be, I'm the only person writing a book set in the North. That's a crime fiction novel. And I'm not saying that, you know, and I, and I wasn't, but it's not like it is now. But So I thought, oh, there's a unique selling point. And then I discovered that Mari Hanna existed. And I remember going to see her um, give a talk at my local library in South Shields before the word opened up in South Tyneside. It was just the old like council building and it was in the the, the, the library theatre there and it was kind of, I think maybe two books in the Kate Daniel series were sort of out or maybe she just really released the third or something. Um, and so, and I've obviously met Mari along the way um, and she's a real inspiration to me and just kind of, kind of what's it been like working with her and kind of how's that, her career evolved in line with kind of you working with her? Sure. Um, well, I met Mari through um, the new new writing North summer trip to, to London. It's a great organisation, as you know. So they would bring a bunch of um, aspiring novelists down to uh, to London and put them in a room full of agents and editors. And I actually popped into this event on the way to another party. And I think Mari somehow was aware that I wasn't going to be in the room for a very long time. So she came up to me and very politely and very confidently gave me her business card and said, um, my name is Mari Hanna. I've got this, um, this novel called The Editor. Um, and she told me about it. And she said, is it okay if I send it to you? And I said, by all means, do. And I went off to my party. And while I was at the party, and she was on the way back up to... Um, to Corbridge, she she emailed me the, the, the manuscript. So when I got home, there it was, and I started reading it. And I was up all night sitting in the loo reading it because it, I had a very small flat, and uh, like a studio flat, and I couldn't really be in bed um, with with the light on without waking up the person next to me, you know. So I went and hid in the toilet and read read the whole thing, <laughs> and, and and called her the next day and said, "This is fantastic." And it, and it was slightly tricky because she was contracted to another publisher. Mm. And I had, had to help her. And, and that publisher was going through hard times and wasn't able to honor the, 
So I helped her get out of that. And then we got down to work on the editor, which was the book that, with a few tweaks, became The Murder Wall, her first book. Yeah, yeah. So we sent that out, and I'd love to say it was an overnight success, but um, we got lots of rejections. And I think having, and this was, you know, 12 years ago, maybe, um, 11 years ago, 11 years ago, I think it was tricky to have a, a lesbian lead. Mm. Simple as that. And, and no publisher would um, ever say that to me, obviously, but that was the sense I got. And the nadir of all this was Mari was coming down on the train to have a meeting with a publisher who was keen. And while she was on the train, the publisher called me to say, I don't think we should have this meeting because I've been told that I won't be able to offer. But, so Mari turns up at my office expecting to go see this publisher, very excited as he would be. And I have to take her to the pub. I said, she'll go for a drink first. And um, I got her a drink and she said to me, it's not happening, is it? And I said, no, I'm really sorry it isn't. But in between her turning up on my door and that phone call, I sent the manuscript off to another editor called Wayne Brooks at Pan Macmillan, and it was Wayne who ended up buying the book. So, and that got the whole thing rolling. So, so that's how that, that started. I think that clearly the secret here is to get Ollie to read your manuscript in very strange places and circumstances, <laughs> and then you've cracked it. <laughs> I know, but I, I, end, I end up remembering um, <laughs> where, where, where I am for the first time. In David Mark's first novel, I was flying to Budapest, and I started reading it as the plane took off from Gatwick. So, <laughs> You're um, going to get lots of writers harassing you in lifts and stuff now and trying yeah. to you <laughs> Exactly. Sorry so, about that. So, <laughs> so obviously, the, the um, in terms of kind of the process around, you know, be, being an agent, working with authors and getting the deals and whatnot, obviously, we know that independent publishers have sprung up quite a lot. So as an example, I'm with an indie publisher who accepts unsolicited submissions, meaning obviously, you know, without an agent. Um, and and so that that's kind of, I, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think that's exploded quite a bit, which makes it to some degree a lot easier for authors to perhaps get in with publishers and have their work out there. Um, do you feel that pressure being an agent in the industry, seeing that happening to kind of, you know, and what impact that has on you as an agent and kind of what do you do that simply can't be done by taking that route? For anybody who's thinking about, you know, how do I submit a novel here? Should I go through an agent or not? What's the kind of, what's the advantage of having the agent? Um, I expect we're better at negotiating contracts and we know exactly what should be in a contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the nuts and bolts of the whole thing. So if you want that kind of expertise for your whole career, then it's better to have an agent than, than not. And I've seen people go to independent publishers and the independent publishers behave completely honorably. I've seen people go to independent publishers and then decide they want an agent. I asked to see their previous contract and it, you know, I have to reach for the sick bag when I look at some of the things they've agreed to just because they don't know any different. And I think it's, it's, it's flattering to get an offer of publication. Mm-hmm. And I think at that moment, if you don't have an agent, you definitely need to take a step back, join the Society of Authors, have a chat. Society of Authors are fantastic. Um, can give you loads of advice. So, you know, I, 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 I think there has to be a bit of um, 
due diligence before people sign up for anything. Likewise, you know, an agency, you have to know what that person is like, what the agency is like. Make sure that their terms aren't taken advantage in any way. My understanding, well, from, from speaking to authors who obviously have agents and Trevor himself and whatnot, it's it's that a big part of it is that the agent in some ways often becomes like a confidant and friend of the writer. And it, and it gives you a person to sound off on and have these ideas and kind of, and obviously you have a good idea of where to send something as opposed to a writer who might just go off everywhere, you know, and, and take the risk there. But it would seem to me that a real advantage is having that person to actually talk to that you wouldn't otherwise yeah. really have. I, I would imagine so, but Trevor could probably tell yeah. you more about what it's like for an author to have an agent. Because to answer your previous question, no, I don't write. Yeah. <laughs> I, do, I do find it, yeah, I, I I never really envisage going through any other route, really. I always wanted to go the traditional way. Partly because of that, because I wanted an advocate. I wanted somebody who was out there in the industry, you know, fighting for me as well, so that I can concentrate on actually writing rather than having to spend all my time, you know, badgering people, really. And I know that Ollie still talks to my editor on, on quite a regular basis behind my back. Obviously, I don't know what they talk about. Yeah. Um, I, I'm hoping it's good and flattering, but, you know, I just I just hear the jungle drums now and again that conversations have been had. So I know he's constantly, you know, there in the background and, I, and always there if I need him. Mm-hmm. Um, which is great. It's just nice to have that kind of safety net, if you like, mm-hmm. that you've got somebody to go and talk to if you've got a problem. Yeah. And and Ali, so obviously we mentioned about the some of the, the authors that you look after and there's that very kind of northern vibe. And we often have these conversations amongst writers around things being very London-centric and everything's in the south and kind of, you know, whether it's books and where they're set and the authors, but as well as like the publishing industry and then the agencies that, you know, are involved in this industry as well. Is that your opinion, or do you think that's shifting? And if not, why is why is that? Um, yeah, you're 100 percent right. Of course, it's, and it's a real problem. I think it's a real problem. If you look at uh, Germany, that has probably one of the most um, successful and thriving publishing ecosystems out there. One of the reasons is that it's decentralized. So Frankfurt is as important as Berlin is as important as Munich is as important as Hamburg. You know? You don't have one city dominating the whole thing and forcing people to travel um, to work in a city that you know, sucks the money from your pocket <laughs> um, to start out in an industry that doesn't pay very well to kick off with, which is, which is a problem. So coronavirus, coronavirus is going to change everything because people aren't going to go back to working the way we did before. I guarantee it. And people from all parts of the UK who maybe thought that they didn't want to, to, to leave where they live or didn't think they could afford to live in London will be able to have opportunities. I think more regional hubs for the big publishers will be opening up. And I think people will be encouraged to, to, to move from London to work in those hubs. So I, I, I think that um, for all the the tragedy and, and, and horribleness of this situation, there is going to be a long-term good that comes from it when it comes to the way we work and the way we live. I'm glad you mentioned think, coronavirus. Sorry, Trevor, you come in there, it's fine. I was just going to say, I think the same is true for writers as well. I think that the ways we've found now to communicate directly to readers through all kinds of virtual panels and websites and Facebook pages and 
and groups, even book clubs to a certain extent. Um, I think that will carry on afterwards, actually. Um, Whether that means there'll be a lot less live events, I don't know. But but I think the balance will change, certainly. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned coronavirus as well, Ollie. So I I guess really my final question to you is, are you looking forward and are you looking for uh, novels that are about coronavirus or have it mentioned in or is it a big no-no for you? Because that's been a bit of a big discussion online amongst writers as well. Do we write about it or not? Well, the funny thing is my author, Lauren Bucus, has been working on a novel for the past four years, which is being published this summer. And um, the novel is about a deadly pandemic that wipes out 99% of the male population and the world that is left behind and, and how it gets rebuilt. Um, and I'm sure when it comes out, people will just be thinking, oh, you know, she wrote this and it's the cash in on the, on the coronavirus uh, situation. But no, she, she, it, it was you know, conceived a long, long, long time ago. Uh, would I like to read any more novels dealing with coronavirus? Um, not necessarily, yes. Not necessarily, no. I suppose. What if? What, what, if, you, what if? What if you knew, Ollie, that it would be, an, even though it would be a bit like you know, coronavirus novel. Here we go. But you knew it would be a huge seller. Does the does the business mind sort of take over to some degree and go, let's do this because I think we'll actually be super successful with this. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> I knew the answer to that one. That was, that was, <laughs> <you know. laughs> Sorry, what would you what, what would you advise your writers who are writing books that aren't about the virus but are clearly set mm. in this period of time? Do you think, yeah, skate over it or or actually kind of deal with it somehow? I think if you're writing a crime series which is contemporary and you're three books in and the previous three books dealt with the event, say. 50 onwards, you're going to have to reference it in the next book because it, it, it just wouldn't be true to the world you've created if you don't. Now, whether or not you want to make that somehow uh, an, an element in the plot or a plot device in some way is, is another thing altogether. But yeah, you know, this is a weird year when we've all had to live in our houses without seeing people. <laughs> I think it would be strange not to Because I've seen lots of writers are, are basically moving the dates of their planned work to just ask. <laughs> Past it somehow, or, or set it in 2019 instead, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about that, yeah. Right, well, Ollie, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I found that super interesting as a writer and somebody who's interested in this industry generally. Um, thank you very much for giving up your time to come on at the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast today. Thank you for having me. Right, well, we're here in the, the after show section. There's myself and Trevor Wood. Trevor, uh, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. I don't know what you thought, whether you learned anything new from your, your agent that you didn't know before. I, I did a few things. I like the idea that he, he reads manuscripts in odd places, um, which shows a certain conviction to what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, um, that's been my problem because uh, what you know, a while ago, shall we say, I did submit to him in the normal way. And uh, didn't get an answer that I was perhaps hoping for. So maybe I need to find him in a lift or in a bar at Harrogate and do it that way, you know. He must have read it in his office. No, Trevor, Trevor, he must have read it. That was the problem. (laughs) 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 So how are you keeping in in lockdown and what are you up to on a day-to-day basis then? Yeah, I'm pretty good. I mean, obviously it's a bit weird. Um, But but as as I've said often, for writers, particularly full-time writers like myself, I mean, my day is pretty much the same as it's always been. 
I, I, I get up, I go into my office, I do a normal day's work, I go out for an occasional jog, mm-hmm. and then I cook the dinner. So by and large, it hasn't changed much. My wife's working from home, I guess that's the only difference. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, apart from that, not too bad. And I, I'm quite lucky that it kind of fell in a period where I, I wasn't necessarily having to be particularly creative. So I was editing my second book. Um, and then copy editing and starting to, and somebody asked me to write a short story, which I was doing. So I didn't have to think about starting a new book, which mm. I think as a lot of people have said, it's not the easiest time to, to be creative, I think. Yeah. And are you generally a sort of nine to five writer? You, you treat like a day job or is yeah, it as and when you that. can? Or Yeah. I've always, since I started writing full time, I decided I had to be professional, if you like. I, I wanted to you know, be working from kind of 9.30 at the very latest and work until about five mm. um, with a short break for lunch and just treat it as if I had a, an office job, basically, uh, which works for me, kind of keeps me disciplined, I think. Yeah. Obviously, I have some flexibility, you know, if somebody says, you know, should we go to the pub one afternoon, once a month, then maybe I'll do that. But, mm-hmm. but by and large, I stick to my nine to five Monday to Friday and give myself the weekend off. Yeah. So given the, the circumstances and kind of what's happening with that book too, um, any change to, to the plan with it? or uh, No, no. My publishers have, have, have just kept things going. Um, not for all their books, I'm sure, but my schedule has stayed the same. So my paperback is due out in September of, of The Man on the Street, uh, which is still happening. And the e-book of One Way Street, the sequel, is out uh, late October, I think. Um, but it was always, I started, The Man on the Street started with what they call a soft launch. So it was released in, in ebook last October and then in hardback this year. And they're doing the same with One Way Street. So at the moment, ebook October, hardback in March. What's the thinking behind that then? Do you know? Or? Well, it's, I think it's a fairly recent kind of development over the last couple of years where where they've decided that if you put the book out on ebook first, you build up quite a lot of word of mouth before the hardback's released, and they, they hope that that will lead to more sales of the hardback, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked pretty well for me. I mean, it, well, the plan was working brilliantly, of course, until they closed the bookshops two days after my book was of course, yeah. put in. Um, so up until that point, it was working great. I had a lot of reviews, all very positive. Mm-hmm. Um, so who knows what would have happened if the shops had stayed on. Yeah, yeah. So- but I quite like it. I was a bit... You know, I was a bit concerned when they first explained it to me because um, I hadn't really heard of it before. But I, I, I kind of got used to it and I quite liked it in the end. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, because uh, I know you a little bit, I know that you have a keen interest in music, listen to all kinds of bands and whatnot, and that you watch all kinds of TV shows and probably an interest <laughs> in film really? out as well. What are the things that have grabbed your attention in recent weeks then? What have you been watching or listening to that you would you would recommend or, or tell people not to bother with? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, watch it. I mean, I, I, I haven't heard a lot of new music recently. I don't know whether that's because there's not a lot being released or I'm just not paying attention. I've been listening, I listen a lot actually to the Spotify um, uh, Friday, I think they call it Release Radar or something, where they just put out a playlist of all the new stuff. Uh, and I've really enjoyed listening to stuff on there. Mm. There's a, a singer called Alma who keeps coming up, who, who stands out. Um, and Slow Tie, quite like. Right. Who's a bit who's a bit out there, um, so maybe not for everybody, but he's he's catching my attention. Um, so so I just like to listen to new stuff. I've always always kept interested in mm. 
in the music scene. Are you a musical? Do you play? No, not at all. No. Not at all. I once picked up a guitar, but it hurt my fingers and I gave up after about a week. Uh, <laughs> so no, but I, I do love listening, and I, I, you know, one of the great sadnesses of this is that Glastonbury will not be happening this year because mm. um, I've been for the last eight Glastonburys, I think. So going to miss that big time and all the festivals that we go to. But one day, I hope they'll come back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but as for watching, oh yeah, probably been watching quite a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah, I've just I've just started watching the third series of Ozark. Um, and I, I, I don't know why it's taken me a while because I, I think I guess there's been a lot of other stuff going on. But uh, I watched the first two as they were out and, and really loved them. Um, and the third series has started brilliantly, so I'd recommend that to anybody. Uh, and there's a there's a, a very little known kind of French English production called Spotless, okay. um, which for crime fans I, I'd hugely recommend. There's only one series apparently, which is a bit frustrating because it was terrific but it's about a, a french guy living in london who's a, a crime scene cleaner okay um, so it's quite graphic at times when he goes to clean up like um you know scenes where guys have jumped off the top of buildings and stuff uh but it's very funny it's very dark uh, and he kind of gets corrupted to join in with a criminal gang to help them clean up things uh and i i really loved it yeah. uh, so i'm quite disappointed to find there's only one series and it was, it was made quite a while ago, so I don't think there's ever going to be a second one. Right. Uh, no, I've not heard of that. I'll check it out, yeah. Um, and so, just to finish off then, kind of you as a brand with your writing and whatnot, what have you got coming up? <laughs> a brand? Yeah, the I'm Trevor Wood brand. What's, uh, <laughs> what's coming up next, generally? Well, book two is the big thing, I guess, really. Like we, we just about finished the copy edit now, so One Way Street uh, will be ready to go. Pretty soon, I think my editor still has to read the final kind of version just to make sure she's happy with it. Um, but uh, provided she is, then the ebook will be out in October. The cover is going to be revealed very soon. Um, in fact, I think if you have a look at Amazon, it's actually on there. I'm sure I've seen it. I was going to say, I think yeah. it's online. Yeah. yeah, my brother sent me a copy of it and said, Oh, I've just seen this, it's on Amazon. I was like, Is it? What? Okay. Uh, but I'm very pleased with it. It's got the time bridge on as usual, but I think yeah, that's, yeah. that's 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 um, compulsory for books set in Newcastle, I believe. Um, so I'm looking forward to that getting out there, uh, see what people think. And you've got some more, more panels coming up online, no doubt. Uh, well, I've, obviously we'll be doing a lot of Northern Crime Syndicate stuff, uh, which I always look forward to. And I've been hosting quite a few uh, debut panels with my fellow 2020 debut authors. Um, we've got a little Facebook group, and, and when the, all the events stopped, we kind of teamed up. So every few weeks, I host a debut panel with five other debut writers, not necessarily crime from all over the genres, mm. which has been lovely because it means I get to meet a lot of people online that haven't met in real life yet and chat to them. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll be doing, doing some more of those, I think. Right, so we'll, we'll find you no doubt somewhere then. Yeah, just, yeah. you know, I'm all over Twitter. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Trevor, for co-hosting today. Uh, we had Ollie Munson on earlier on. That was fantastic. Um, Trevor really put the work in on that because, you know, Ollie doesn't know me from from Adam, pardon the pun. So uh, it was great having him on and having a different voice. That's not necessarily just a writer as well. So that's what we aim to do here, have people from all over the industry. Um, and tune in next time where we will have more from the Northern Prime Syndicate podcast.